0: And the rest of you, let me ask you to take your Bibles and turn to the book of John this morning, the Gospel of John. I said some things to our congregation last Sunday just to loop anyone in who has not yet caught up on those things. Um, the next couple of Sundays are going to be a little bit different in that uh, my wife and me and our girls will not be with you. Uh, we have been given the opportunity to do some ministry on the island of Oahu in Hawaii, and so uh, I know everybody kind of shakes their head and says, yes, go suffer for Jesus, right? Yeah, we're going to go, Lord willing, on Tuesday morning, uh, flying out to Hawaii uh, to spend the next two weeks ministering in a Christian camp there. Uh, It's called Camp Kapono. It's on the island of Oahu, the Waianae area on the uh, west side of Oahu, and we are looking forward to a week of junior camp. So that's 4th through 7th grade, and then a week of teen camp, that's 7th through 12th grade, and then also working in um, uh, some churches on the weekends, working with the staff as well. We were asked to come because a speaker canceled. So uh, we're not first string. That's okay. Uh, We'll we'll take second string when it's Hawaii especially, right? But uh, I was very grateful for the invitation from some friends. A friend of ours had to cancel last minute. They got a hold of us a few weeks ago, and our leadership team very graciously said, we think you need to take the opportunity and go. So uh, we're going to go and spend, Lord willing, the next two weeks in ministry there. Pray for us. Uh, Christy's got a couple of seminars in the team camp. Uh, They told me I'll be preaching between 20 and 25 times in those two weeks, so it's a lot of ministry. Uh, It's a a very busy, busy time. Um, We're looking forward to it, though, uh, working program and and so forth. Our girls will get to work in the kitchen the first week and be campers the second week, Lord willing, so a lot of of moving parts with all of this. So we'd ask for your prayers uh, for this. You'll be in good hands, though, while we're away. Uh, Pastor Dave will minister the word, and Luke Beaver will minister the word uh, while I'm away, and then when we come back, we'll uh, have... Uh, Daniel Jones from ORH and Mike Kennan uh, spending some time telling us about some things that are going on. That's on Father's Day, the 19th, I believe, is the date uh, for that. And so looking forward to having them with us for that day as we'll spend some time in the Word and then also talking about this mission trip that our, our team just went on to Albania. And so a lot of neat things over the next few weeks. Uh, we hope that you'll be a part of all of it and be in prayer uh, for us as well. There are, as I said, a number of moving parts with these things Uh, But this morning, we want to spend our time in the book of John. I want to direct your attention, actually, to two passages that are found in this gospel. It's interesting to note that both John 12 and John 13 uh, begin with similar stories. The beginning of chapter 12 and the beginning of chapter 13, there's a lot of parallels in these chapters. I want to spend some time this morning looking into these two stories And what I'd like to do is really use the first story, John 12, as an introduction for the second, and we'll spend the bulk of our time in John 13. But let me begin by reading down through the first eight verses here in John chapter 12. You can follow along there in your Bible or on the screen. This is what John writes. Six days before the Passover... Jesus, therefore, came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. <clears throat> Martha served, and Lazarus was one, was one of those reclining with him at the table. I'll pause here for a moment. In Matthew's record, it tells us that this was actually in the house of Simon the leper. Okay, so this was not in Lazarus' home. This is another man's home, uh, likely a man healed by Jesus of his leprosy. Uh, leprosy was, a, was a, considered an unclean condition. There's no way, had he not been restored, that they would have been gathered in his home for a meal. And so we believe this was a man healed by Jesus, hosting uh, a, a, a meal for Christ in his home. And Lazarus is there reclining at the table. Verse 3, Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume, but Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him said, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? And Paul's there. It's... Interesting how, how John wrote this. He said in verse 4, verse, at the end of verse 3, the house was filled with the, the fragrance of the perfume. He's painting a picture of a, of a pretty amazing scene. No one would have mistaken it. It would have been a, a beautiful thing to see and to observe and even to, to smell. But watch the reaction of Judas. Why wasn't this sold and given to the poor? In our days, we might say, party pooper, right? I mean, this is something amazing, and he's angry about it. He's upset over it. In fact, he's incensed. What in the world is she doing? Why would you do something like this? In fact, in Matthew's gospel, all of the disciples join in with Judas and they literally call it a waste. Why this waste? This isn't good. This is nonsense, they thought. All the disciples could see as they watched and joined in with Judas was the extravagance of the gift. We don't have time to chase it all this morning, but let me just tell you briefly, in a moment, Mary poured out more than a year's salary on Christ. There aren't many of us who have the wherewithal to drop a year's salary in a moment. That's what she did. It's gone. There's no getting it back. It's been poured out. It's been spent. There's no gathering it up. There's no doing anything else with it. It's just given. And it's gone. And the disciples' response was, what a waste. Judas is angry. In verse 6, Judas said, he said, there. John explains, Judas said this not because he cared about the poor. Because that's what he said, right? Why wasn't this sold and given to the poor? It sounds pious, right? There's a better use for that than worship. There's a better use for that. But he said this, verse 6, not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. I wonder how often you and I have seen something crazy. Maybe you've been tracking some of what Elon Musk does with his money, right? And you think, wow, I could put that to use. (laughs) Throw a little bit of that my way. Maybe you watch a fellow Christian give an extravagant gift or an offering to a missionary and you think, what I couldn't do with that. We all know how to lust after that which isn't ours, thinking what we could do with it if it were ours. It's exactly what Judas was doing. Mary came out and she offered a year's salary in a moment as an act of worship to the Lord who was about to be crucified and all Judas could see was what he could have done with that money if it was his. And he couched it in pious language, he he couched it as so to protect his character, right? He wanted people to think he was generous, no, no, if I had it I'd give it away, no he wouldn't, the scriptures tell us plainly he wasn't thinking about giving this away, he wanted it for himself. He feigned genuine concern, but he wasn't concerned about anybody but him. He was concerned about how this extravagance was a loss in his ledger. Just just think about what was happening here. This is a selfishly hard-hearted and soon-to-be satanically inspired thief. And he was more concerned with how this act of worship affected him personally than he was with what it announced about Jesus symbolically. He couldn't see the beauty. He couldn't see the wonder. He couldn't even praise the Lord. All he could see was what he would do with it if it were his. Astoundingly, the... Rest of the disciples, as I noted in Matthew's gospel, told you in Matthew's gospel, it's told they join in. They all agree. All of them said the same thing. Judas was apparently a pretty convincing leader. He speaks up and they all agree. Hmm. But what does Jesus say? Verse 7. Jesus said, leave her alone. So that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you. But you do not always have me. Don't miss the fact that Jesus was quick to correct this wrong-headed thinking of the disciples about Mary and what she was doing to honor him. He steps in, he speaks up. In fact, in Matthew's record, Jesus calls what she did a beautiful thing. This beautiful thing she's done. In fact, the text of Matthew, we're told that he adds these instructive words. In pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. I want you to follow this. What's going on? Our Lord was headed to the cross. That's why he came to give his life a ransom for many. He'd been telling the disciples this. He'd been been telling them what was coming. He'd been letting them know this is what is on the horizon. This is where I'm headed. This is why I came. And yet, even though he'd been telling them, they couldn't seem to get it through their heads. In fact, at one point, Peter even looks at Jesus and says, stop it. Stop talking like this. This isn't going to happen. We're not going to let it happen. Jesus has to look at him and say, get behind me, Satan. You don't care about the things of God. You only care about the things of man. Wow. So here's the question. How was it that Mary got it when the disciples didn't? Mary is preparing Jesus for his burial. And they're fussing about it. How did she see what they all seemed to miss? Some scholars have suggested that Mary didn't know the full significance of her act. And and maybe she didn't understand with crystal clarity every event that would happen in the next week. But what is clear from this passage is, is that she understood more than the disciples did at this point. She got some things they didn't. We have to ask the question, why did she understand more than the disciples did about the Lord's approaching appointment with the cross? The answer I would simply ask you to remember another incident in her life. She and her sister again at a at a meal and in Luke chapter 10, we're told this about Mary. Now, as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village and a woman named Martha Welcomed him into her house, and she had a sister called Mary, same Mary as the previous text we just read, who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. Look at that again. She sat at his feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving. Mary has chosen the good portion which will not be taken from her. As Jim Boyce studied the scriptures, he once commented on this pattern in Mary's life. And he wrote this. Every time we see Mary, she is at Jesus' feet. Worshipping him. And learning. From him. Brothers and sisters, I think it's safe to assume that Mary understood things that the rest of the disciples did not because she lived at Jesus's feet. She listened intently to his words and she learned the lessons that he taught without arguing. Without offering her own two cents. Just listening to learn that she might do. And in light of that, we need to ask ourselves a question. Friends, do we humble ourselves at the feet of Jesus? Do we learn the lessons that he teaches and do we act upon them as a way of life? And we find that we really like to be around the people of God when it's convenient, right? And we're happy to to sit under the sound of some teaching and maybe we'll catch some things here or there. But if we're totally honest, might we have to admit that we spend lots of time with His people while listening kind of half-heartedly to His Word, which then often leaves us swayed by the... The loudest voice in the room, whether that voice is self-serving or Savior glorifying, just as long as the voice is loud, we follow them. That's what was going on with the disciples, right? They were around. They heard it all. They didn't believe it yet. They hadn't seen it with clarity. What's interesting, though, is that while they were... Getting the picture more clearly, as Christ got closer and closer to the cross, they still were hung up on themselves. This was about them. Who was going to be the greatest? Who was going to be recognized? Who was going to have the chief seat? Right up until the Last Supper, they're still debating it among themselves. Which of them is the greatest? In fact, what I want to do now is I want to take these thoughts from John 12 and I want to turn the page. So literally, we can turn the page, John 13, and I want to to go to the Last Supper. I want to consider the next story at the start of the next chapter. I want to read here 17 verses, okay? We read 8 at the beginning of 12. Let's read down the first 17 verses of John 13. And John writes, now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of the world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it to the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hand and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper, he laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist, then he poured water into a basin and he began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter who said to him, "'Lord, do you wash my feet?' Jesus answered him, what I am doing, you do not understand now, but afterwards you will understand. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Man, this is Peter, right? you never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, the one who has, been, who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who would betray him. That's why he said, not all of you are clean. And when he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If then your teacher and Lord have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. Or I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Isn't it interesting to note the fact that in back-to-back chapters, our Lord needed to teach His disciples such similar lessons? One is worshiping Him at the beginning of chapter 12, and they're fussing about it, and He has to correct them. They come to the supper the night before Christ is to die, and He still has to be teaching them such similar lessons. understand this passage, we really need to understand its context, just As I mentioned to you, the story took place on the, the Thursday night of our Lord's Passion Week. The very next morning, King Jesus would be arrested and mistreated and dragged from one kangaroo court to another in the dark early hours of the morning, all before being taken before Pilate and crucified on Calvary that same day. But before all that would take place, Jesus enjoyed a meal with his disciples to celebrate the Passover. And from what we can gather, the only ones in the room that night were the Lord and the twelve. So, who's there? I want you to think this through with me. Change was coming for the disciples, coming pretty quickly. Now, these who had walked with, they'd learned from Jesus for three and a half years, would soon be left on their own. Within hours of this event, they would watch their beloved Lord be taken from them, beaten, scourged, crucified. And their response would be the response of those who clearly didn't get all of this yet. Matthew 26, 31, Jesus said to them, At this meal, you will fall, all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. Hours from this supper, this is going to take place. They're going to run into the night to save their own lives. In light of all that's about to take place, I think it's worth asking this question. What lesson, what lesson did our Lord leave with them the night before all this took place? What did he want to make sure they they had in their heads because it's clear there were a lot of things that hadn't yet made into their hearts we're not even sure they were in their heads fully yet but what did he want to make sure they saw in him and they got from him to answer the question we need to use the the rest of our time to look at two two big ideas from the passage okay We'll look at them one at a time, and the first one is this. I want you to see, friends, that our Lord was the ultimate example of humble love. The ultimate example of humble love. have got to understand this passage. To understand the passage, we've got to understand the opening words of it. Don't, don't miss verse 1. We tend to read right over introductory verses if we're not careful, because they just feel like that they're introductory, but let's not miss what's in them. In verse 1 of the text, it said this, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that His hour had come to depart out of the world, He knew that His hour had come to depart out of the world to the Father. Having loved His own who were in the world, He loved them to the end. Everything that's coming in this passage flows from the loving heart of Jesus Christ. For his own. Look at the verse closely. Jesus knew that he had come to the end of his earthly ministry. He knew that he was about to suffer and die and rise again and ascend into glory. He knew who he was and that his place was with the Father. He knew all of these realities, and still, knowing all of that, he loved his own who were in the world. I don't know about you, but I know my own heart. I'm assuming we're all wired similarly in some ways. It's really easy to look past what's right in front of me to the next thing. You guys ever find that, right? You can't wait for the weekend, so you're like just kind of glossing over the work in the last couple of days of the week. You got a vacation coming, and man, you just can't get anything else in your mind because that's 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 just captivating you, right? You know, you know it's coming, and so you can't do anything but think about the next thing. And you miss the people right in front of you. You, you miss the situation. You, you don't know how to read the room. You you, you why? Because you, you just it's always the next thing, the next thing, the next thing. Listen to those words. Jesus knew what the next thing was. He knew. The cross is coming. The ascension is coming. Glory's coming. Still, he loved them that were in the room with him. He wasn't looking over them. He was looking at them. He wasn't looking past them. He was loving them. Even though he knew everything that was about to happen. And it tells us he loved them to the end. To the end. There seems to be a play on words here when when John writes that he loved them to the end. Clearly, he loved them to the end of his earthly ministry. That certainly seems to be in view here. But the language of the phrase could actually be translated, he loved them to to the uttermost. To the uttermost. In other words, it seems that the, that the passage is making a bigger point than simply stating the fact that Jesus loved them in the final moments of his life and ministry here on earth. I mean, that's a marvel to us who are fallen and know how hard it is to keep our mind on any one thing for very long. But, but it seems here that he is saying that Jesus loved them fully, completely, unendingly. In fact, the high priestly prayer that Jesus would pray a little later in this same night... A prayer that's recorded later in this, in this same book, John chapter 17. Jesus' love and his prayer that night were not simply for the disciples who were present in the room with him, but he prayed that same night for those who will believe in me through their word. He was loving us that night as he was loving them. Don't miss this, friends. The Savior's love is unsurpassed in its greatness. Nothing compares. No one compares. We think we love someone or something so great our hearts might burst, right? We can't, can't even compare what we call love to what His love was and is. Let me also say this, friends. The greatness of Christ's love is proportionate to the humility from which it flowed. Like, it's proportionate. He was incomparably loving and incomparably humble. It's it's mind-blowing when you think about it. Christ Jesus was the rightful king of glory. He humbled himself though, and he came to earth in obedience to his father's will. Astoundingly, he willingly and joyfully did the work that he was given to do. And within a few hours of this story we're reading, he was about to finish the work by humbling himself even further. To quote the apostle Paul, humbling himself to the point of death, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. It would have been a step down for Jesus to come and live in a palace his whole life and die on a feather bed of old age. But he was born in a cattle stall. He lived as a carpenter's son. He grew up and lived as a wandering teacher. And he suffered the death of the most despised of people. Agonizing death. Shameful death. That's his kind of humility. And after his death, he's going to rise and he's going to send back to glory. Now follow this. If if anyone in the room that night at that supper, if anyone in the room deserved to have their feet washed, it was Jesus. Right? I mean, if anyone at that table deserved to be served, it was Christ. But no one was watching out for his needs. None of them were willing to get their hands dirty. Now, that's a slave's job. That's not my job. Somebody else will get to it. I'm going to get mine. I'm going to make sure I get what makes me happy. was the mindset of those at the table. Just watch what happened that night. We see it in our text. Verses 2 through 5. It was plain. During supper, when the devil had already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garment. And taking a towel, he tied it around his waist. And he poured water into a basin and he began to watch the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Now, let me just ask you a handful of questions because the text is saying some things I think that are worth considering. Friend, Let me ask you, have you ever considered the fact that the devil was in the room? And in the heart of one of the men that Jesus loved and served that night. The devil was there. And Jesus still washed Judas' feet. So there in verse 2, the devil had already put into his heart of Jesus Iscariot, Simon's son to betray him. They'd had supper, remember? The text tells us Jesus gives him the bread, he eats the bread, and the devil enters his heart. He's right there. How about this? Have you ever wrestled with the fact that one of the disciples that was there fought against the love of Christ that night? I mean, it wasn't like they made it easy for Jesus to serve them, right? You see that again in verses 6 through 11. It came to Simon Peter who said, Lord, do you wash my feet? He doubles down. You will never wash my feet. Well, If I don't wash you, then, well, then wash all of me. This is Peter. He's, he's like all over the map. He's just like us. One extreme to another extreme to another extreme, right? Peter fought with him about this. How about this? Have you ever connected the dots to see that all the disciples were arguing at that very meal about who of them would be the greatest in the kingdom of God? In Luke chapter 22, talking about this same meal, Luke writes this And they began to question one another which of them it could be who was going to betray the Lord. Okay, so Jesus now has said there's going to be a betrayer, and so they're, they're asking the question, but what, what, what rises up after that? A dispute also arose among them. So they're debating who's going to betray him, and it leads to a fight about which of them is the greatest. A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was reg- to be regarded as the, the greatest. Apparently, they're looking at it and going, oh, well, I won't betray him because I'm the greatest. <laughs> and they're fighting about it. At this meal. Now Jesus has told them what makes people great in his kingdom. Greatness is service. But there aren't many servants at the table. There's just people who like to talk about their greatness. According to the text, friends, one of them was a devil-inspired betrayer. Another was a self-righteous denier. All of them were self-centered disputers. And still Christ loved and served them to the end. He still got up, laid aside his outer garments, grabbed a towel, filled a basin with water, got on his knees, And got his hands dirty. As he washed their feet. There's no mistaking this, our Lord's love was was humble. It was not self-absorbed, it was not aware of its own needs, but aware of the needs around it. At sacrifice to meet the needs of others, it took the low place. Christ's love did what others wouldn't do. It supplied what others needed. It did what was best for those it served. His love was not just about the work. It was also, more importantly, about the heart. I kind of picture this meal being one where almost like a a parent who knows the best way to get the child's attention. They're, they're, they're bickering at the table about who's the greatest. And you can kind of see Jesus just get up from supper, walk over, get a basin and a towel, and show them what greatness really is. Just get your hands dirty and serve somebody. It wasn't about recognition or appreciation. His love was not self-serving at all. It actually served still when others rebelled and when they resisted. It served the unworthy with its eyes wide open. He knew they were unworthy and still he served. You and I serve when we think people are worthy of it, but will we serve when they're not? You see, with all of that in mind, I think we need to ask the question, then what are we to do with this text? Like, how are we to understand it? What, why all of this information We said, first of all, our Lord was the ultimate example of humble love. But secondly, I would say it to you this way, friends. We must love like our Lord has loved us. We must love as our Lord has loved us. I want you to listen to the end of the text again. John 13, beginning of verse 12. We read Christ's instructions following his example. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord. And you're right. for So I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, here's the application, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Brothers and sisters, please don't miss this. Our Lord did not just serve the disciples in that moment and in that context alone. Rather, he served us all by setting an example for every one of us who names his name to follow. He's not just telling the twelve, now you all do this. This was written down for our instruction so that we might do this. And he applied his inspired example by making two profound statements. You you can't miss these in the text. It'd be really easy to just read on and kind of move on. And we would actually do damage, I think, to our application if we did. Let me just summarize the statements and I'll show them to you in the text. But... The first thing I need you to see is this that whenever we refuse to serve like Jesus did, we demonstrate our belief that we are greater than our Lord. When we refuse to serve, we actually reveal that we believe we're greater than Jesus. You say, I didn't see that in the text. Well, let's look at the text. What was Jesus actually saying? Look at verse 12 again. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do just as I have done to you. Okay, I'm the teacher. I've told you what you need to do. And notice what he says. Here's his application, verse 16. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master. So what are we saying when we say, I won't serve, but the master did. I'm greater than he was. I don't need to lay down my life. He may have, I don't need to. He may have gotten his hands dirty, not me. He may have taken the little place, I won't." What is that saying? It's saying, I actually believe I have a higher rank than Christ did. Follow the reasoning. If he, the master, served the disciples, then we, the servants, should do the same. After all, he did what he did to set an example to follow, not merely admire. Oh, what a tragedy it would be if we would study a text like this and simply sit back and go, wow, what a Lord we have. Now someone serve me. Let's admire his example, not follow it. That's tragic. But it's common. I'll admire what he did, but I won't do. What he did. In case we missed it. That language was plain. Verse 16. A servant is not greater. Than his master. But when we. Refuse. To be like our master. We actually reveal. We believe we are greater. Than him practically speaking. That's why I say that whenever we refuse to serve like Jesus did, we demonstrate our belief that we are greater than our Lord. You see, whether we would ever say it or not, I don't believe that we would. But whether we would ever say it or not, unwillingness to serve the brethren flows from a heart that thinks, King Jesus may have taken the form of a servant, but I will not stoop to that low place. I will not. I will not be inconvenienced. I will not be put out. I will not spend or be spent. I will be served. Oh, brethren, what a what a heartbreaking tragedy when those who would say that we have been made his will not follow in his steps of service. So we said that Whenever we refuse to serve like Jesus did, we demonstrate our belief that we are greater than our Lord. But there's a second thing in the text we need to make sure we see before we close. And it's this. Friends, we will find true blessedness, true happiness in doing his commandments, not just in knowing them. Not just in knowing them. If we're not careful, we read over the intro and we read over the conclusion of a text. Let's look at the last of this paragraph. Verse 17, Jesus' interactions with them. What did he say? He said, if you know these things, blessed are you if you know them. No. You're not blessed for knowing them. You're blessed if you do them, if we actually do as he did. Friends, there's a simple yet profound truth wrapped up in this little verse. Happiness is not found in knowing, happiness is found in doing. You just have to ask, do you believe that? Does your life demonstrate that you believe that? There are many things that we could consider from Scripture where we are told something so plainly, so clearly, so easily understood, and yet we find ourselves perfectly happy to go, check, heard the sermon, let's go home and have lunch, right? Nothing ever changes. I don't do it, but I know it now, right? I feel better. I think blessedness comes from knowing. James actually warned very sternly, don't be hearers of the word only, right? Be doers of the word. We, We know this. This is all over the scriptures. Let's face it, most professing Christians are more than ready to be willing and and to acknowledge and to even celebrate the example of the Lord, right? We we, we make much of this. We love this passage. This is an amazing passage. We have an amazing Lord. And we love the fact that He serves us. Isn't it amazing that a passage that was written to instruct us to serve each other becomes about Him serving us? That's what our minds can do, right? Right? What an amazing Lord. He serves us like this. But what did he say he was doing? Not just serving us, but calling us to serve each other. Sadly, we have to confess that far fewer of us are willing to actually take up his mantle. Maybe we should say here his towel. Follow his example. And serve others ourselves. I think it's no wonder that so many of today's professing Christians do not seem to know the blessedness, the joy, the happiness of following Christ Jesus truly and fully. Because he tells us that blessedness comes by doing what he's taught us, not merely by knowing it. And how many of us would have to confess we know so much more than we ever do? Clearly, though, our blessed Lord served as he did and set the example that he did so that we might follow in his steps. As we close it, I just want to wrestle through a couple of closing questions with you. I want you to think about it. I'm not going to give you answers to them. I want you to wrestle with them yourself. I need to think about it myself as well. Well, friends, how about this? What would be different in our lives if we each were consistently loving one another just like our Lord has loved us? Might our Sunday morning rituals and routines and Saturday night rituals and routines look a little different, like we actually get here early to see each other and stay a little later to serve each other? That'd be so quick to get in, so quick to get out, and we did the church thing, right? Like, like would n- not getting our hands dirty look a little different than it often does? Could it be that wait, rather than waiting for someone to tell us, hey, there's a fellowship, we actually call each other this summer and say, hey, why don't you come over to our house for a meal? We actually invite each other into each other's homes. I mean, it would be a glorious thing, right, to get our hands dirty, because it's hard to do in a pew. It's hard to get your hands dirty in a pew. I think it's a great thing to be here and learn, but this isn't, this is knowing, this isn't doing, right? How how about doing? What what does that look like? How would our lives look different? I'm waiting for someone to serve me. Well, how about we start serving each other? And guess what? We all get served when that happens, right? How would our lives look different? What would be different in in our homes? Husbands and wives and parents and children and siblings with each other. We follow Christ in these ways. What would be different in our church, right? If we served one another as Christ served us. We're coming off a, a season, a difficult season, really? Two plus years of everything in your world telling you stay home, stay alone. Be served, You know, order it online, don't go to the store, right? Like, 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 You can live your life completely separate from everyone around you. You can worship at home, you can shop at home, you can live at home, you can work from home. You don't need to be in people's lives and you don't need people in yours. We're coming off a season of the entire world telling us that is the new normal. You cannot get your hands dirty like Jesus if you believe that. Can't do it. So I want to encourage you this summer, serve each other. Go out to eat with each other. Have each other over. Make sure you're here. Fellowship with one another. Plan to come early and stay late. Adjust your weekend schedule if you need to. Why? Because if we're going to serve each other like Jesus did, I think so we've got to be together we got to want to be together. Well, oh, friends, I know, I know we love the fellowship. And fellowship is pretty easy when somebody else is setting it up and cleaning it up, right? But how about we serve each other in ways that says, you know what? I'm going to be like Jesus. i want to swallow my pride about what my front porch looks like or my front rooms looks like. And people can walk past that and eat at my table. It's okay. I'm, I'm going to open my home. I'm, I'm going I'm to serve someone. I'm, I'm going I'm to stay. I'm going I'm to show up. I'm going to drop by. I'm going to write a note. I'm going I'm to love someone. I'm going to get my hands dirty. Would you take up that charge? Would we, would we be willing to take that up as a church, to take up the towel of Jesus and say everything culturally may be telling us to stay away from people? We're gonna love people because our Lord has loved us. And by his grace, we're gonna serve each other to the end that he's glorified, he's honored, and we all are served by one another following his example. So I wanna encourage you, gonna kind of kick off this summer and start into the next few months to take up that towel And think about how you, by His grace, might serve for His glory and for His honor. All right? And let's pray together to that end. Father, thank You. Thank You for Your Word. Thank You for Your truth. It's so easy to find that the siren call of the world seeps into our thinking and we begin to believe the things that we're being told and to think the way that We're being told to think, and yet you have called us to be a people who lay our lives down for each other, who love each other, who serve each other. Would you help us to know how to navigate these things in a way that would be most honoring and glorifying to you? Father, I pray for our church this summer. I pray for the churches we'll be able to serve in Hawaii in the next couple of weeks. Might we? Might we be a people? Might we grow to be a people? We're not just admire the example of Christ, but who walk in his steps. Because that's what we've been called to do. So Father, might we take this to heart? Might we honor you well with our response to your truth, for it is in Christ's name that we pray these things. Amen.